today we catch up with Jesus in the temple, and this is a sermon about lively, righteous anger. Lively, righteous anger as an appropriate response whenever we see people restricted from accessing God and God's gifts for creation. Listen now for God's word as it comes to you and for you from the gospel according to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My earliest recollection of lively, righteous anger happened way back in the day when my son was two and our little family of three went on a summer vacation. The little sleepy town that we visited had a playground unlike any that I had ever seen. They had all the gadgets, all the toys, all the equipment. It was all there. There was a stream running through paths for the kids to walk on. One day at this playground, there was this itsy-bitsy little kid. He had a bike without training wheels, and he was proud of it. He was riding all around, making skid marks, making a big fuss about his bike, and he's purposefully riding close to the other kids at speeds that are unsafe. I'm getting annoyed by all the grandstanding. and I'm looking around to see if his mama or his daddy close by. I'm angry at the kid for showboating because, you know, eventually everybody will learn how to ride a bike, but he wanted to make it clear that he was the only one on the playground that day that could. And my son, he loved bikes as well, but we forgot to bring his. So Abraham just stops what he's doing. And he stares at the kid, and I can see it in his eyes. He wants to ride the bike. And he watches the kid for a few minutes, and he keeps getting closer, inching closer every second. And at one point, my sweet son, who wouldn't hurt a fly, just reaches out and tries to grab the handlebars and take a turn. He misses, but this little kid glares back at Abraham with the meanest look of disgust and impatience 
that I've ever seen on a three-year-old. I see it, and Abraham sees it, still no mama around, and, and Abraham looks at me in a way that says, do something. And of course I couldn't. Oh, I was angry. In fact, I, I can't ever remember being more angry at another person. The anger came upon me so quickly that I didn't know what to do with it. People have done me wrong, and I've been hurt in the past, but this was the first time someone had hurt my son. I picked him up, and after I gave my son a hug and told him that one day I'll buy you a faster bike than his, don't worry. After all that, I realized that my anger wasn't encouraged by the kid. It was born out of love for my son. I wasn't surprised by the depth of my anger as much as I was amazed at the breadth of my love. I didn't mean to get angry. My love gave me no choice. This is the story of Jesus in the temple. Lively, righteous anger is born out of an expansive love that refuses to be betrayed. And when our love conflicts with the reality of life as we know it or experience it, it is okay to go ahead and sin, get angry, turn over a few tables. Sticks and stones were explicitly banned from the temple. So today Jesus makes a whip of cords. All four gospel writers share this story, but only the gospel writer of John includes the detail that before Jesus erupted in anger, he sat down in the corner and he quietly fashioned a whip of cords out of the leather bands that herders used to control their sheep and cattle. It would comfort me greatly to locate a more nuanced and gentle characterization for Jesus' outburst of anger, but I can't. Today, we have to settle for the whip of cords and Jesus being angry. But you'll notice that the gospel writer makes it clear that Jesus was piping hot, but he doesn't explicitly tell us why. You see, everything Jesus targeted in his explosive outburst of righteous fury, the doves, the sheep, the cattle, the money changers, all of it was necessary for the temple to function smoothly. The temple was the only place that someone could make an atonement and sacrifice for their sins. And the tradition of Jewish law stipulated that those sacrifices couldn't be made in the temple with impure or unblemished animals. So to ensure that the atonement sacrifice that you came all the way to the temple to make was effective, you'd buy a verified animal from one of the vendors out in the courtyard around the temple. These vendors literally made their living off the sins of other people. Likewise, you couldn't pay the temple tax with a coin bearing the face of Caesar. You had to use some other kind of money. So a necessary market of buyers and sellers developed around these needs also. The other three gospel writers 
suggests that the market wasn't fairly regulated and some people were being cheated. But the scripture that we read this morning doesn't immediately tell us why Jesus is raging. He's a devout Jew that is committed to the law and has committed that law to his memory since he was a young child. He shouldn't be surprised by the tables stacked with unblemished doves or the money changers lining the hall, shaking their money bags. This market didn't just pop up on the day when Jesus showed up at the temple. The church and the market have been coexisting harmoniously for a long time in first century Palestine. This first 46-year-old temple that seated on Mount Zion in Jerusalem was the center of social, political, religious, economical, and judicial power. This was the third temple that had been constructed. This temple was commissioned by Herod the Great, but it was different from the first two. This one was constructed to advance Herod's political power, his political agenda. It wasn't built because of his devotion to the teachings of the law or the prophets. Herod wanted Jerusalem to retain a prominent position within the Roman Empire, and there's no better way to introduce yourself as a person or people of power than to build something big and shiny and imposing. This temple was many times larger than the last one. This one had a gold roof, and this one had a separate court for women. And this one had a large Roman-style double colonnade that surrounded the outer courtyard. And all of this was on a gigantic raised platform within a broad public area. It was built to be seen. The temple had to be big enough to welcome all of the Jews that descended on Jerusalem during the religious festivals. And that's where we find Jesus this morning on his way into the grand, imposing, shiny, but not quite yet finished temple during the Passover festival. To get inside the temple into the space that was reserved for the sacred matters of the soul. He had to pass through a space reserved for the selling and the buying of doves, sheep and cattle. And at some point on his march through that outer courtyard, Jesus sensed in his spirit that something wasn't right. This mutually beneficial relationship between the marketplace and the sacred space was amiss. Something about the relationship tripped his sensors. Next thing you know, cows are running and sheep are headed for the exits and tables are getting flipped and coins are crashing to the floor and in the hands of the Son of God is a whip of cords. I don't know about you, but I don't want my Jesus to get angry. I like the Jesus that promises to go after one sheep that's lost, leaving 99 others behind. Not the Jesus that drives sheep out of the temple with a whip of cords. I like the Jesus that was serenely baptized in the Jordan River 
with a dove keeping holy watch above. Not the Jesus that sends doves flying at the whip with a whip of his cord. I like the Jesus that tells calm parables about not digging a hole and burying your treasure in the field. Not the Jesus that clumsily empties treasures on the floor of the temple. I don't want my Jesus to get angry, but today he does. Some of us have fared well through this pandemic. Our accounts may even have more in them now than they did almost exactly 12 months ago. When the marketplace, or what we call the economy, ground to a halt. But for many of God's children, the pandemic has felt like God got angry with us. And I know some will say the coronavirus is easily explainable just as this biological fact of life, and it doesn't care how it makes us feel. But the violent and messy and uncontrollable and chaotic destruction of the marketplace that we come to know as the sum of our work, our relationships, our travel, our church fellowship, our communal rites of passage like weddings and graduations, our lives, the destruction of it all makes me long for answers from God. In the blink of an eye, our tables were overturned and our sheep driven out and our doves released, demoralized and downtrodden. We are left asking why. We said our prayers. We shared out of our abundance. We stayed out of trouble by following the rules. We provided goods and services and acted with honor and dignity. If it wasn't for us, the pilgrims traveling into Jerusalem for the Passover wouldn't have an unblemished dove to sacrifice. We weren't doing anything wrong. So why is our table turned over? I don't know what exactly set Jesus off that day in the temple, but I do know that God doesn't brandish a whip of cords to punish us for the sins of our past. That's not how the gospel of Jesus works. And it's clear that Jesus wasn't punishing the money changers or the dove sellers for something that they did in the past. That's not the gospel either. But I do know that we will all be accountable for the ways in which we restrict access to God and to the gifts of creation. There's always been enough to go around. God made it so. But the clearing out of life as we know it has revealed that not everyone can afford to deal in the marketplace of life. Jewish religious tradition demanded that unblemished animals and coins unblemished by Caesar's face were necessary to be forgiven by God. But if you're poor, 
The difference between an unblemished animal and dinner is zero. They are the same thing. You're going to eat the lamb first and worry about your religious devotion later. And so, in this way, the liberation of people from transactional relationships that are defined by profit and loss, winners and losers, buyers and sellers. The liberation of people is the gospel. Jesus said, those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. What will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Showing up with an unblemished dove or possessing enough coins to pay the temple tax will get you into the temple. But what if our reverence of the temple is the problem? So Jesus said it, not me. Tear this thing down. All of it. All 46 years of work, tear down the tables, the doves, the altars, the Roman colonnades, the courtyards, the gold roof, the laws that restrict access to God and the basic gifts of God's creation for the privileged. Tear down all of it, and in three days I'll raise it up. I don't know why Jesus wielded his whip of cords and wiped everything out, but I do know that sometimes it takes everything getting wiped out for us to remember what made up the foundation. And so this is the call of the church as the bridegroom of Christ. If we're the hands and feet of Jesus in this world, then we too should keep wiping everything away. Cleaning out the junk that keeps us from seeing the floor. The call of the church is to bring our attention back to the truth. And that means each of us as priests in the church must wield a whip of cords on occasion. If that makes you a little anxious, then good. The gospel of Christ should induce some anxiety and conflict. If things aren't getting turned upside down, then the followers of Jesus have just been walking in circles. And when things get turned upside down, there might be a mess that's left behind, but don't stop to clean it up. Don't bother trying to put it back together. Some messes are supposed to stay put. Some messes are holy consequences of lively, righteous anger. So check and see. If your hands are in your pocket or if they're reaching 
for a whip of cords? Are you standing in the corner trying to avoid the cattle stampede out of the temple or are you leading it? All this does come with a warning. Be careful, church. Because if you go wiping things out and don't have a story to tell and it's placed, then you'll find yourself in a whole lot of trouble. We have already got enough cynics and naysayers in the big family of faith wiping things out every time they roll their eyes or whisper under their breath. We don't need anybody else on the demolition crew that doesn't have any construction skills. You see, when all was clear and the chaos had subsided, Jesus had to answer a question that all of us wielding a whip of cords will have to answer also. Tell us. Tell us, the religious elite asked, what sign can you show us for doing this? Or, Put more appropriately, what got into you, boy? And at this point, it would be wise for you to have a better response than DeSasa preached a sermon about righteous, lively anger. You should have a better response than, "Mm, we need to try something new. Before you go blowing up your next committee meeting or holding your next conversation partner hostage with your critiques about everyone but yourself, you better know the rest of the story. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The hope of the resurrection, that death is but a prelude to life and that God will never give up on us, is the foundation. Without it, the marketplace has no meaning. Without it, the sacred space might as well be demolished. Without it, the whip of cords in our hands is nothing but an instrument of violence. But with it, with it, lively, righteous anger is redeemed and gives birth to an expansive love that is impossible to betray. In the name of God, Creator, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning into our weekly sermon podcast here at First Presbyterian Church of Dallas. Mm-hmm.